Canada's longest underwater cave system underneath the Ottawa River. It, the visibility is very poor and the flow is very high so it's difficult to dive in there. But I wanted to check it out and when I did I saw the most dense biomass biology I've ever seen in a freshwater cave so I was pretty excited to explore it further. That's Jill Heinerth, cave diver, documentary maker, and RCGS explorer in residence. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. I'm thrilled to have Jill Heinerth back on the podcast talking about some amazing dives she's doing in the longest underwater cave in Canada and dives she'll soon be doing around the coast of Newfoundland this summer. Jill's an old friend of the podcast, our second ever guest back in season one. That's an amazing conversation too, so be sure to check it out if you haven't already. And a quick thanks to all of you who donated to the first ever RCGS Polar Plunge. It was a huge success. We exceeded our fundraising goal by $2,000, which all goes a long way to funding our fourth season of Explore. So thank you so much. Thanks also, of course, to our plungers, Catherine McKenna, Perry Belgard, Alex Pope, Andrew Lovesey, and Norman Osman, who all jumped into frigid waters for this good cause. And also thank you to RCGS's Sarah Legault for making this glimmer of an idea a reality. Kendra Thompson for her work on social media and video editing. You can check out the video from our Plunge Day, filmed by our guest today on our Cangio social feeds. I'll repost it as well on my Twitter account, at McGuffinDavid. If you want to help more of the amazing work the Royal Canadian Geographical Society does, you can pledge at rcgs.org forward slash donate. And monthly donors get a handsome RCGS toque. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Jill Heinerth. Jill Heinerth, RCGS Explorer in Residence, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. It's great to join you again. Well, it's it's great to have you here. And uh, you were a big part of our Polar Plunge event, and if people don't know, Jill was filming the whole thing, so you won't, you won't have seen her in the video, but she was on the ice with her shoulders deep into the water with an underwater <laughs> camera, filming us <laughs> jumping in and out. <laughs> so thank you for that. Oh, that was so fun. <laughs> it's amazing. One of the things I love about working with RCGS is getting to have conversations with the amazing people who work around it. And I was just talking to you about what you're up to, and there's a couple of amazing things. Things you are involved in, one of which is right here in the Ottawa area on the Ottawa River and involves a, a massive cave system I've never heard of. And I think quite a few people would probably never have heard of. Can yeah, you tell us a bit about that? It's a pretty good secret, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Very well kept secret. Yeah. yeah. Well, we are home to Canada's longest underwater cave system. So there are over 10 kilometers of passages, all like branching out like a tree, basically, underneath the Ottawa River. So an underground river below the river near Westmeath. And that's sort of northwest of Ottawa up towards where Pembroke? Yeah, yeah downstream of Chalk River, basically. Yeah, yeah, close to yeah. Pembroke. Yeah. How did you come across this and what, you know, what, what first brought you to this place? Well, a colleague of mine, Dr. David Swatsky, first um, explored and surveyed the cave um, with the help of a few people over the course of years because it's a, mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of work. And it's not exactly 
a show cave, <laughs> I guess you might say. So it is, it's small. It, mm -hmm. The visibility is very poor and the flow is very high. So it's difficult to dive in there. It's definitely mm -hmm. not, not a place for, well, of course, not for unqualified cave divers, but not even very many cave divers would be terribly interested in going mm -hmm. into this place. And so it's just kind of sat there un unnoticed. When you say poor visibility, like how is, what are we talking about? Ooh, uh, one to two feet. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Yeah, I've had visibility as good as a little over a meter, but mm -hmm. uh, but that's about it. There's a lot of particulate in the water. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to check it out. And when I did, I saw the most dense biomass, biology I've ever seen in a freshwater cave. So I was pretty mm -hmm. excited to explore it further. So the caves are running along the river, under the river, like, and they go for... 10 kilometers, more than 10 kilometers. Wow. And they were first um, written about by Sir William Logan and his early explorations of, hmm. of the river. And I'm, I'm actually trying to dig deeper and, and find like the indigenous past as well, because that's going to be incredibly relevant. Somebody hmm. would have guided William Logan to this place. And this place would have been... Uh, a place known for bounty of fish mm. and mussels. And and it's quite remarkable when you're there, you can see places where the water is welling up out of the ground and percolating on the surface or siphoning into the ground like a vortex whirlpool. So wow. yeah, there's no way that this wasn't uh, noted in history. <laughs> Amazing. And so talk about the, the biomass you discovered there. The main thing that I'm seeing in there are just unbelievably dense muscle colonies so bivalves shelled organisms mm -hmm. and um these are called uh, unionids so unionid mussels freshwater mussels and they're different than um, marine mussels in that they need freshwater fish in order to survive to get through their reproductive cycle Mm. And uh, this turns out to be a place not only that's a great home for these mussels in great numbers, but it's also the home to some very endangered ones that are close to extirpation. Yeah. And so what's unique about these these mussels? Or, I mean, what, what was intriguing to you about I mean, we sort of see, think of mussels as being all over the place, but... I mean, you've probably seen them in the Ottawa River. There's like mm. 21 species in the in the Ottawa River, which represents a third of the species found across Canada. There's five of those species that are living in the complete blackness of the cave system. So they never see the light of day. I mean, these animals do move. They have a foot and they can actually kind of wow. create a little earthworm effect as they move through the substrate. That's one of the important ecosystem services that they provide. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't come and go. They don't walk in and out of the cave. So these animals, they're living their whole life cycle in the blackness. And mm -hmm. nobody's ever studied um these these particular mussels or mussels that are living in, in a cave system. So it's a unique opportunity for me to collaborate with my scientific partner, Dr. Andre Martel from the Canadian Museum of Nature. And so he, he was obviously aware of this mussel before? Or... So he's been studying this mussel in the river, um, so in the oh, okay. open water, but not in the cave because he's not a cave diver. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. Is this a subspecies then? Is... Uh, no, so the hickory nut mussel is um, is present both in the cave and out of the cave, and mm -hmm. we're assuming that we're dealing with the same species uh, mm -hmm. right now, but we'll we'll find out over time. 
But imagine like in places in this cave, I'm finding over like a hundred inv- individuals in a square meter. That's, Whoa. that's a lot. And there's a lot of other life there as well. There's sponges and things living on the muscles. And imagine that one muscle can filter two liters of water per hour. Wow. Okay. So that's 48 liters of water per day. So 10,000 plus liters of water a year for each individual. And I am guessing that there are millions of muscles <laughs> in this cave system. So that's a pretty significant um, ecosystem service that it's providing for the Ottawa River. It's like a huge filtration system, basically. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, and we can get a sense of how mussels filter water because we know that the zebra mussel has been introduced to the Great Lakes. That came from the Caspian Sea originally, mm-hmm. came in the bilges of boats. And those mussels in the Great Lakes have turned the Great Lakes from two or three feet of visibility when I started diving over mm-hmm. you know 30 years ago to you know, a hundred foot plus visibility now in many cases. So they've completely filtered the Great Lakes, but um, non-native mussels like the zebra mussels are not good for the environment because they're Mm. eating everything. And so they're out competing other important species that need that food. Whereas a native mussel is much, um, much better for the environment because it's eating, it's providing filtration, but it's not eating everything. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And so describe, I mean, how far into the caves are you going to to find them? I mean, are you having to go quite a distance in? Or No, the mussels are present close to the entrances, but they're also Mm. present way far in the cave, in the complete Mm -hmm. darkness, hundreds of feet from entrances. And so we don't know exactly, like, what they're living on right now, but it's such a rich ecosystem in there that we're just trying to, like, identify who's there right now sponges and crayfish and bass and log perch and sturgeon all come and go from the cave and they're all connected to the species because if the mussel doesn't have a fish partner it's never Mm. going to reproduce so that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. that makes it a bit of an indicator species for the health of the entire watershed so tell us more about that What, what fish are they cooperating with so imagine this little shelled animal bivalve so It's just that, you know, shell you pick up on the beach. This animal um, doesn't have eyes. It doesn't even have a brain. But Mm -hmm. what happens inside the cave, well, this happens in the river as well, but a male mussel will release its sperm into the water column and those will drift downstream and a female mussel will catch those. So then she starts to grow young, little teeny microscopic bivalves Mm -hmm. and she also simultaneously grows a lure out of her own flesh so it's a fishing lure and it's Mm -hmm. specialized for particular species of fish so she grows this fish-like appendage out of her own flesh and that fish-like appendage has little frilly fins and fake eyes like these black spots with a white center and a white ring around them that really look like eyes. And so it looks like a fully formed fish hanging out of her shell. And and she vibrates that in a way that attracts a particular fish. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the um, sort of the plain pocketbook mussel, for instance, a bass may come and nip at that lure. And when it does, she sprays her young and a big mouthful of sticky mucus at the fish. So it goes into the fish's mouth 
and then those little microscopic hinged bivalves will actually latch onto the gills or sometimes the fins on a fish. Mm -hmm. And then it will insist into the fish so that it can rob the blood serum and eat that for a while. (laughs) And it can only do this with an immature fish, so a young fish, because if a Mm -hmm. fish is older, its immune system is more um, developed and it'll immediately kick out the invader. But a young fish will let it hang around for days or weeks or months. And then eventually its immune system will go, ah, what is this that's bugging me? And it'll kick the little bivalves out. Then they bury themselves in the substrate for a couple of years before re-emerging as juveniles. And Mm -hmm. the muscles that I'm seeing inside the cave can be even one to 200 years old. No way. So again, back to that filtration thing, like 10,000 plus liters a a year for 100 or 200 years, one little muscle is really important. Right. And so, and, what, and what's the fish that we're talking about here? Well, uh, for the plain pocketbook muscle, we, for the hickory nut muscle, mm-hmm. we have sturgeon, which are also endangered. And this right. stretch of the river is like the last sort of uh, stronghold, the most healthy population of lake sturgeon in the watershed. So wow. it's important. Like it's 140 kilometers of river in between two dams. So mm-hmm. it's relatively natural, right? But as we know, you know, sturgeon aren't going to come and go and jump up over some of these dams, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the dams can be a threat to any fish species, really. And sturgeon are a kind of amazing fish. Too. I mean, oh, they, talk, they can live 100 years. Yeah, too, yeah. Right? They're yeah. like old little dinosaurs. They're, they're mm-hmm. amazing. And, and, they, and they can be quite large, too. So both are endangered. Mm-hmm. Um, what, and is, is the dam the main threat or what other sort of threats are we well, looking at? Yeah, here? I mean, the dam's a threat, you know, human impact is, is, a, is a threat, certainly. Like anytime we alter the natural landscape, it's quite wild up there. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of population there. Um, certainly, you know, anything that pollutes the water can, can damage anything within the watershed. So we worry about things like, wow, chalk rivers upstream mm-hmm. and, you know, some of the thoughts about changes in how we're going to dispose of nuclear waste. We have to think about about that. There's a big power. Um, plant yeah. There, yeah. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, there are no zebra mussels here yet because zebra mussels will outcompete native mussels. And zebra mussels have basically caused the, the extinction or the extirpation of most of the native mussels within the Great Lakes watershed so far. So um, it's really important to understand and, and document these, these last stands. Mm. Mm-hmm. So how, I mean, how, so you've been doing this for a, a year or so now, visiting with these mussels? Yeah, and... a couple of years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you describe going down one of these caves and sure. that experience? Like what, yeah. what happens? Yeah. So the flow is very strong. Anyone that's paddled or swam in the Ottawa River will recognize the current. And mm-hmm. that current runs through the cave systems as well. So I usually try to enter a, a portion of the cave where the water's coming out. So I'm doing the hardest work first, swimming against the flow to get into the cave. Mm-hmm. And it can be so intense that I'm literally hanging onto rocks and pulling myself in against wow. that flow. So we run a continuous guideline of string into the cave system so that we always have a tactile reference to come out. Mm-hmm. Because I'll probably need that on my way out because the visibility is only a couple of feet to begin with. Mm. And any time the silt gets disturbed by myself or the fish in the cave system, I can't see when I come out. So I just put my hand on the guideline to retreat. Mm. 
The cave isn't big, so it's, uh, you know, a couple meters high at best, a wow. few meters wide at its widest with smaller, smaller places as well. Uh, and it twists and turns and branches off much like the branches of a tree. So um, navigation is very careful and well thought out <laughs> as we move through the system. Yeah. And you're able to go down there. You've got a light kit. You've got, what, cameras? Yeah. and Yeah. Yep. I take cameras, lots of lights. And there's a lot to see besides the mussels. Like, there's a lot of sponges living in the cave. There's fish life. There's even mm -hmm. insects that begin their life in the underwater cave system. The uh, caddisfly begins its life there. And uh -huh. he hangs nets, underwater nets, all over the cave that collect plankton that it can feed on in its larval stages. Uh, so... It's an interesting place to me. There are fossils everywhere. There are fossils on the ceiling and the walls on the floor. And these tell of the, you know, the past as the seafloor. Basically, we find corals and nautiloid shell fossils and uh, all kinds of things that I hope a geologist is going to help me to, uh, to identify from my uh, photos and video. Yeah. That, yeah. That's incredible. And mm -hmm. so how far in do you think you've gone? Like how, if you were to guess, like we're talking about 10 kilometers of caves, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably, you know, the longest penetration that I've been from an entrance is, is, you know, under, under a kilometer really, because there's mm. little places that pop out everywhere. Now we can't always get in and out of all of these entrances. Like we always mm. go in and come out the same way especially in a system like this with a very high velocity because it can take an entire tree and suck up an entire tree. Come on. And yeah, yeah. in the springtime. And, wow. uh, and that tree could block uh, an mm. exit. So I would never want to count on an exit that I hadn't been to that day. But, you know, it to me, there's so much we have to learn here because there's mussels, there's sturgeon, pike, bass, log perch, um, burbot, catfish, other fish. There's um, crayfish, there's um, copepods, amphipods, all kinds of much smaller things as well. Gastropods, there's hydra, these little sort of dancing things that look like those inflatable balloons that you put a fan <laughs> under at a car yeah. dealership. That's what a hydra yeah. looks like. Nice. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot to uh, to catalog and, and write about. I think Andre and I have our work cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no kidding. So is there, I mean, eventually do you hope to have like a documentary film or is there something where do you see this going well we're going to have a short segment in an upcoming documentary film about the great lakes watershed and that's going to be released uh this fall actually where, where's that yeah. going to be it's going to be on tv ontario and smithsonian it's going to be a huge release it's great. absolutely beautiful three-part documentary filmed in the blue planet level of of, of right. uh, cinematography it's just amazing. It's uh, the producers, Merritt Jensen Carr and Ted Oaks are also working with the uh, Royal Canadian Geographical Society and we're producing an educational program to go with it. So you'll probably see the muscles popping up in there too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, and you also have an amazing project going on this summer with our CGS and our CGS flagged mm. uh, uh, expedition. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's called the Great Island Expedition, and myself and some teammates uh, were originally scheduled to go in the summer of 2020, um, so we've waited right. a couple of years to, to go back because we will have a fair bit of interaction with uh, the local communities, and we certainly don't want to increase anybody's COVID risk. But mm. we're going to go all the way around Newfoundland uh, and Amazing. document some interesting new dive sites, and 
um, focus on some of the absolutely remarkable underwater environments, both for their beauty, their biology, but we're also going to look at some very significant shipwrecks, um, mm -hmm. beyond the shipwrecks that I've already uh, shared with the uh, the society in Belle Island. Which I encourage people to check out. That's also amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So these are two U.S. Navy ships that uh, represent one of the largest losses of life to the U.S. Navy. And these were sunk in 1942. Mm -hmm. And they sunk just off of the Buren Peninsula in Newfoundland. So the reason why these are sort of significant um, are, well, for many reasons, not just because of the loss of life, but they were using a very early uh, form of radar mm -hmm. and they didn't quite understand it <laughs> back then. They didn't quite understand the reflections um, from the radar and three ships, um, the Wilkes-Barre, the Truxton and the Pollux, all ran aground close to shore. So this is on a February night in 1942 as they're trying to, you know, stay out of the sights of U-boats that are tracking them. Right, yeah. So one of the ships, the Wilkes Bar, managed to pull off and and save itself. But the Truxton and the Pollux started to get just battered by these horrible February waves and started to break up and eventually sink. Mm. Now as with all horrible sinkings, this was happening at four o'clock in the morning. So uh. everyone's awakened by the crash, essentially. But the story that is of the greatest interest to me is the story of a man who was um, like a porter on, on the ship, on mm -hmm. the Truxton, actually. So at four o'clock in the morning, when the ship ran aground, some men immediately tried to get off the ship and they mm. tried to run a line to the shore so uh, they knew that the ship wasn't going to go down but deep in the hold of the ship were um, black crewmen mm -hmm. who were not full members of the segregate, segregated navy at the time they were allowed to be like porters assistants basically mm. but they lived their life in the bowels of the ship and this one man Lanier Phillips was quite remarkable so Lanier grew up in Lithonia, Georgia, and at the time, the Ku Klux Klan was incredibly active. I mean, Lanier was born in 1923, and in 1929, the Ku Klux Klan uh, burnt down his school, the only wow. school for black children in Lithonia. So Lanier didn't have a lot of hope in life. I mean, he's the, I guess, the great-grandson of, of sharecroppers and, and slaves, and uh, so he thought, I'll join the Navy. This will be the best way not to get lynched. Mm. But joining the Navy those days meant serving meals and being assistants and staying in the bowels of the ship because the sailors would tell them, don't come out. If you go ashore, you'll be lynched. And they wow. would tell them this wherever they went. So when the ship ran aground, none of the black men in the bottom of the ship wanted to come out. <laughs> wow. They thought they were in Iceland and they thought if they came ashore, they'd be lynched. But eventually Lanier led the men out of the bottom of the ship, basically, and he got ashore and was quite heroic in his efforts to assist others, not just across this, this rope, but to pull people out of the water that was now filled with, filled with oil mm. and to get people up this terrible cliff to the point where they were crawling in the snow looking for help. And a local person found Lanier in the snow near death and brought him to a mine to help him recover and clean him up and rescued other sailors as well. And as this woman, Violet Pike, started 
scrubbing Lanier's body because he was covered in oil like everyone else. At one right. point, he woke up and said, ma'am, you won't be able to scrub this off my body. It's the color of my skin. Wow. <laughs> and she said, what? I've never seen a black man. How cool is this? Yeah. <laughs> and she thought he was quite special and brought him home and she wanted to take care of him. Hmm. But to her shock, when the Navy sent a bus to take the men that did survive, the very few, he couldn't ride the bus with them because he was black. Oh, wow. And this man actually went on to fight racial discrimination. It was because of the love and care from the people in Newfoundland that he recognized that he was fully human for the first time in his life. I wow. mean, imagine that. He never felt fully human. So Violet Pike opened his eyes and he never turned back. He fought racial discrimination. He became the first black sonar technician, a full member of the U.S. Navy after being attempted to be paid off not to join the Navy. Wow. But beyond that, he went on to work in undersea engineering. He joined the Alvin team, the sub team. He collaborated with Jacques Cousteau and no, he no marched... Way. Yeah, he marched with Martin Luther King on the historic 54-mile march in Selma, Alabama that ended up on mm. the Edmund Pettus this Bridge. Bridge. Yeah, incredible. So, wow. you know, this man has been like one degree of separation, like from so many incredible moments in history. And, you know... It, had he not been saved that day yeah. and shown such kindness, huh. things could be very different. Did he maintain a relationship with those people in Newfoundland? Was he it... did, yeah, through his whole life. In fact, mm. it was, um, I think around 2008, the Memorial University of Newfoundland actually gave him an honorary doctor of laws degree. And oh, that nice. was for his you know, resistance and, and capacity to rise above, above the repression. Mm. Um, so his whole life, he went back and forth to Lawn and St. Lawrence and kept up a connection with, with um, the descendants even of, of the people that rescued himself and his friends. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What an incredible story. What a, Isn't so, it? Yeah. And I mean, I look at things like this in Canadian history and I think, wow, first of all, not many people know that German U-boats were hunting down ships mm. around Newfoundland um, mm. in World War II. And of course, Newfoundland was yet to become a full member of Canada, right? right? Did that part of the war maybe shift <laughs> Newfoundland in that generation, that general sure. direction of joining mm -hmm. the Confederacy? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, no so not a lot of Canadians know about the U-boat history, about the shipwrecks. And certainly um, few people, um, Canadian or American, know about you know, the heroism and, and important contributions of people like Lanier Phillips. Huh, amazing. And so those yeah. those ships are still at the bottom of the sea there. And they are. And we're going to jump in the water and photograph what's uh, what's left and contribute to um, to all the images and, and video to people in Newfoundland that are that are conserving that archaeology uh, for the future and, and, and sharing those stories. Awesome. Well, Jill Heiner, thanks as ever for sharing your stories because they're always <laughs> fascinating. Oh, it's my pleasure. Obviously, yeah. I could talk all day on this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't capitalize too much. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's just such, such, uh, such a great story. It really yeah, is. So. It sure is. And I look forward to sharing more of that in the, in the magazine coming up and on blogs for CanGeo. 
Yeah, is that coming up? This is an article in the magazine coming up. Then. Well, eventually. I mean, August yeah. and September will be our expedition, and we'll follow that up with lots of outreach and stories. Fantastic. Right. Well, Joe Heiner, thanks so much for coming on the Explore podcast. Awesome to join you again. Thanks. <laughs> and thank you for listening. If you like this episode or this podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're all slaves to the algorithm in this podcasting universe, and the more good things are said about us, the more opportunities we get to reach a bigger audience. And remember also to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Well, I'm a first for Canada.